0: Welcome to the I-29 Moo U Dairy Podcast. I-29 Moo University is a consortium of land-grant universities in Minnesota, Iowa, South Dakota, and Nebraska. This podcast covers timely news, information, and research for today's dairy industry.
1: Well, welcome to our podcast today, the topic for today with uh, Dr. Paul Fricke from University of Wisconsin. He's going to talk about the impact of high pregnancy rates on reproductive management. So Paul, do you want to kind of give an overview of what you mean by that idea?
2: Yeah, you bet, Jim. And and thank you for having having me on this podcast. Yeah, so this is a topic that flows out of the idea that we've been able to dramatically improve 21-day pregnancy rates over the last 20 years or so. So looking at an average 21-day pregnancy rate in 1998 of about 14%, today we have pregnancy rates that get into the 30s and and maybe even the low 40% range. So that shift happened relatively quickly. And I think it took a lot of people by surprise. And so we need to talk about what the implications have been now that we've been able to shift these herds from relatively low pregnancy rate to a relatively high pregnancy rate. And one of the ways I want to illustrate this is I worked with a colleague of mine at University of Wisconsin, uh, Victor Cabrera, and Victor is a modeler. So he's, he's got all these fancy uh, models that we can ask these interesting questions. And so what I did was I simply modeled a thousand cow dairy with a 14% pregnancy rate. Now, the strange thing about these models is you've got to say what the culling rate is going to be. And, and that's not the way it works in the real world. I know that. What really drives culling is availability of replacements. If You don't have a lot of replacements, you can't call very much. If you have a lot of replacements, farms tend to call a lot. And so that may be opposite of what people think. You know, actually bad repro lead, doesn't lead to high culling. It generally leads to very low culling because you don't have the replacements. And so what I did is I modeled a 1,000-cow dairy, 14% pregnancy rate. I set the culling rate to 40%. Why 40%? Historically, 40% has been where we've been in Wisconsin with culling rates for many years, 40%, 42%. So I put it at 40 What you end up with is with a 14% pregnancy rate and a 40% culling rate, you need 468 replacement heifers to deal with that culling rate but at that 14% preg rate, you only produce 333, your deficit 135 heifers. So generally when you have lower pregnancy rates, you don't generate enough replacements. And so if you think about 20 years ago, we were in a heifer deficit period. Everybody was out in the market competing for springy heifers. Now, of course, what, what did that do? It drove the prices of heifers up. Jim, you know, 15, 20 years ago, what was the price of a uh, replacement heifer in Minnesota?
1: I don't know. I mean, it wasn't common for them to be between $1,500 and $2,000, $2,200, depending on milk price, but exactly. a lot more than they are now.
2: A lot more than they are now. So, so then what I did is I, is I took that same 1,000-cow dairy and I said, okay, now we're going to push them to a 30% preg rate. We're going to hold that 40% culling rate. So now you need 353 heifers, but you're producing 453 heifers. So now we're producing more heifers than we need. And it's an interesting phenomenon. And we can talk about this a little bit, Jim and Kim. This is what I saw. When all of a sudden we had this explosion of replacement heifers in the industry. And there's this mentality that a lot of farmers had that, you know, you don't sell heifers. Because you don't know when you might need them, right? Because before, it's like you never had enough. So you wouldn't ever want to sell them. And so what was happening was they were culling older cows just to shove those younger animals into the herd. And we started to see the percentage of first lactation cows in some herds going from 40 to 45% up even into the 50% range. I don't know. You can say what you might about that, Jim. Did you see kind of the same thing happen for a period of time?
1: Yeah, absolutely. As a good friend I work with. That's, that's what happened is call rates gone up over time because his repro has gone up over time. And that yeah. this was a number of years ago, but it generates an interesting discussion. What do we do? Do we really want all these heifers? And do we need all these heifers?
2: Yeah, and that's, that's really where we have started talking about the new problem. The old problem was not enough heifers. That's been a classic problem throughout a long time in the dairy industry, not enough heifers. Our new problem is we've got too many heifers, and we have to adjust to that. So now we're talking about heifer inventory management. And so I just went back to a UW Extension 2015 uh, dairy replacement ICPA survey. And Jim, I think you're, you're familiar with this data. Mm-hmm. Um, they calculated that the rearing costs from birth to calving are $2,500. Now that's in the upper, kind of upper Midwest, right? So that's gonna vary from region to region, but that's kind of what it is for us. $2,500 to rear a calf from birth to calving. I checked, and this is an older number, this is from March 18th, 2020. Top grade springing heifers in Stratford, Wisconsin, at the sale barn were selling for $1,200. So every, each, every extra heifer that you raise is costing you $1,300. So you can frame it this way, raising an extra 100 heifers per year results in $130,000 per year in excess rearing costs for 1,000 cow dairy. So that's where Jim, we've had to start thinking about, do we really need to raise all these heifers? When, when you think about this heifer inventory management thing, now this has all happened The repro revolution happened kind of concomitant with this genetics revolution, right? The genomics revolution. So now what we can do in herds is we can use these genetic tools. We can genomically test. Or if you have really good pedigree information, you can index your herd. You know which cows are your good cows and which cows are your not so good cows. And basically, if you look at a bell-shaped curve, that's really the way the genetics in a herd will in a group of heifer, non-lactating heifers or even in your lactating dairy cows. So what we might want to say is the bottom 25% genetically. We don't want replacements. We've already got too many replacements. So let's target our replacements for the best genetics. So the poorest animals, say the bottom 25%, we're either going to call those animals and when's the best time to make a calling decision in a heifer? It's right when you get the test back, right? It's not when she's about ready to calve is when she's like two to four months old. So you can cull those animals and maybe raise them as beef. You can take the next group of animals and maybe use the, and just inseminate those with beef semen. And then the top end of the animals, you're gonna use sex semen. And that's where you're gonna get your replacements. And so now we can start saying, which animals do I want my replacements out of? We have farms now that are just making those calculations. They say, how many replacements do I need? I know which are my best animals. I know how many I have to breed per month or how many how many calves I need to get out of these animals using sex semen per month to keep up with whatever the culling rate is. And, and this is even more exciting, now we can start to manipulate or manage the culling rate. For the first time, culling rate is not the whim of not being able to get cows pregnant and produce replacements. Now we're starting to see herds say, I want a 25 or 30% calling rate. I don't want a 40% calling, And now we can do that. So everything has dramatically shifted in the industry. And I just want to also reiterate that all of this is predicated on the fact that we can have now 30% preg rates instead of 14% preg rates. And it's because of the tools and technologies that we have that allow for that. So we've got now the electronic heat detection systems, we have the fertility programs, those together we can drive this thing. Now we've got more heifers, now we can start to do heifer inventory management. Now we can use sex semen, beef semen, we can determine, we can control this thing a lot better. And so let me just, so one of my grad students, uh, Megan Lauber, she's working in this area with sex semen. And so she went to AgSource and she got data from 2006 to 2020, on the proportion of inseminations in Holsteins. Now, there's all Holstein females, proportion inseminated with conventional semen, with sex semen, and with beef semen. And it's, I wish I could show you the graph. It's an amazing graph because if you look at sex semen across two, 2006 to say uh, 2015, it's somewhere in the 8 to 10% range. But then all of a sudden, 2016, it was 9%, 2017, 13%, 2018, 15%, 2019, 19%, 2020, 20% of all breedings in Holsteins are sex semen. Same with beef semen. There was literally 4% of the breedings in 2017 of Holsteins were beef semen. That's 2017. 2018, it was 11%. 2019, 21%. 2020, it's at 23%. So what we're seeing, and then the rest, of course, are conventional semen. So we're seeing this graph. We're seeing increases in sex semen. We're seeing increases in beef semen and Holsteins. And we're seeing a rapid decline in conventional semen. And Jim and Kim, you guys can comment on this. There's herds that I work with now here in Wisconsin that no longer use conventional Holstein semen. They're about 50% sex semen and they're about 50% beef semen
1: across the entire herd. Yeah. I think that's real common with jerseys, especially.
2: Jerseys were way ahead of us. And why was that Jim?
1: Because a Jersey bull calf is worth <laughs> <Exactly>. essentially nothing. <laughs>
2: exactly. But you know, uh, Holstein, Holstein, uh, bull calves aren't worth that much anymore. And I don't know whether the value of those Holstein bull calves is really ever going to come back. We have some, uh, Processors here, I believe Tyson here in Wisconsin, who will no longer take uh, dairy steers for slaughter. So there's pressure on those on those Holsteins to value them.
0: And I think you, this is a whole nother topic for discussion. You know, dairy beef, um, yeah. but I'll, I'll say kind of thinking through our discussion the last few minutes of you know why we had why we needed more heifers the last few years and where we're at for heifer inventories today cooling has changed because of our heifer numbers we now have sex semen for heifers and then beef semen where do you see us going in the future do you see sex semen in heifers staying do you see us backing off a little bit because our heifer inventory numbers are so great what does that look like
2: I, it's a great question, Kim, and I think what we're going to see moving forward is dairies being extremely flexible, depending on market prices that drive these decisions and what's going on in their own herd. For example, my graduate student's working with a dairy here in Wisconsin on a on a heifer project, and she was telling me she'd be done with this project. We're using sex semen in heifers. We're doing an experiment. We can talk about that later, maybe. And so she was progressing with this experiment. She was going to be done enrolling heifers. She was going to have enough heifers bred to sex semen to be done by the end of August. And all of a sudden she told me, well, it's not going to happen until the end of October. I said, why? What happened? Well, the farm is producing so many heifers, even using the sex semen that they were. Now they're breeding fewer of their heifers to sex semen before it was almost all of them. Now they're breeding some of their heifers to beef semen. So it slowed down the progress of her experiment. But that's how quickly I think these farms are going to be able to make these decisions and, and look, they're going to tighten down the margins for these, this inventory management as they get better at it. And so I think we're just going to see these things fluctuate as market prices fluctuate. And, and there's other technologies um, that I want to talk about in a few minutes, particularly related to IVF embryo transfer. And I think we're going to see just big increases in IVF embryo transfer moving forward as well.
0: Before we transfer to the embryo transfer, before we transition there, your last comment on dairies are starting to breed some of their heifers to sex semen. I'm seeing a lot of that too here in, in Nebraska and surrounding states. Dairies using sex semen for their heifers, but the yep. multiparous cows, they're using a beef semen. Yep. Um, And I think trying to help the heifer inventories there, but yet we have so many cows that are great, um, high producing cows in their lactation. And with just a change in genetics over time, just better conception rates, service rates are improved. Do you see that continuing then too?
2: Yeah. I think part of what we're talking about here plays into what I would call the high fertility cycle, which we'll talk about in a future podcast. And it's really It's really it's really the interaction between repro and uh, and nutrition, and what we're seeing in some of these herds, and I think it's it's uh, it's it's a positive effect of those two things on each other that just continually drives things to to get better. And I you know we're seeing herds. I just did a talk for a group of nutritionists here in Wisconsin, and they specific I said you know what do you want me to talk about? And they said tell us how these herds are getting such high pregnancy rates, just we've never seen these high pregnancy rates before. And so I kind of walked them through some of these concepts, the development of fertility programs, you know, heat detection systems, the high fertility cycle, all these things together. Obviously, there will be a limit to where we can go with repro, but we're really making big strides as we move forward. And it's exciting to see herds that are doing so well, it's, you know, to see this done at scale, is just, just kind of an amazing thing. And and, you know, the nutritionists agreed with me that, that nutrition is a lot easier in a herd with good repro. You know, they all kind of chuckled <laughs> when I said, would you rather work with a herd with good repro or bad repro? They all, they all pretty much uniformly agreed that good repro makes makes everything a lot better.
1: Yeah, it's just been amazing this over the last 20 years. How many now, you know, there used to be the discussion of buying replacements, as you mentioned, but now it's how many beef cows? What crosses should we be using? Should we considering putting beef embryos in? It's just, I mean, Repro has talked about, Repro and genetics are talked about a lot more on farms than even five or six years ago.
2: And I think, again, that's that's what's happened, Jim, is I think the reproductive revolution has happened. I think all these technologies have kind of, there's a confluence of all these technologies that have kind of hit us at the same time. And I think People are just feeling their way through how to get this kind of thing implemented on their farm and get it to work. I know that AI companies are working hard at helping mentor farms through this, the veterinarians out there that are, that are doing this as well. We're trying to get those, uh, those kinds of things, what we have to offer at the university as far as research and looking at these things economically. It's very exciting time to be involved with Repro because of so much is going on uh, right now. I wanted to get into a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of new information, if I can, Kim, about the, the whole sex semen thing that I think your listeners will be interested in, and uh, just want to walk through the concepts here. So the, the ability to sex semen has been around for a long time. The idea has been around for a long time, and it's based on the fact that the X chromosome has 4% more DNA than the Y chromosome. So the Y chromosome is smaller. So essentially, there's a difference in total DNA between a sperm that is X-bearing versus Y-bearing. And so they can use a complex process that involves dye, a dye that binds to DNA and and laser beams and all this kind of thing. It's called flow-activated cell sorting. There's two processes out there. There's sexing technologies that has kind of the traditional method. Sex Cell is, is ABS, and they've got a, another system that they're using. So there's a couple different products out there with sex semen. It's about 85 to 90% accurate. Uh, so what the desired, you know, in most research would show, you can get 90% females if you, use, if you use sex semen. One of the downsides of sex semen is that it damages the sperm. And so you're going to see lower conception rates with sex semen compared to conventional semen in randomized controlled studies. Now, that doesn't necessarily, and this is the, this is one thing I wanted to dwell on just a little bit, is that a lot of herds, like you said, Kim, are breeding these first lactation cows with sex semen. Well, they're the highest fertility group normally with conventional semen, but you basically pull those cows down to similar fertility to the older cows when you use sex semen because you'll get about 80 to 85% of the fertility of conventional semen with sex semen. So a person looking at their breeding codes would just say, look, sex semen is every bit as good as conventional semen, but you're crossing that across two different fertility groups, right? So the misconception is that there's no decline in fertility with sex semen. Any uh, randomized controlled study will show uh, that you'll get 80 to 85% of the fertility of conventional vegetable semen. So that's just one little thing I wanted to put out there. Now, because so much sex semen is used in the industry, a lot of people have looked into the question of, do I need to breed cows at a different time relative to estrus or ovulation with sex semen? Maybe we can optimize fertility. And there's a couple studies that were done using heat detection systems that appeared that inseminating later relative to the onset of activity yielded higher fertility. So there's a big concept that's out there right now that we need to breed cows a little bit later with sex semen. But that data has mostly been generated based on increased physical activity. What we've shown in a study is that as milk production increases, the interval from the onset of activity to ovulation also increases. So it may appear that breeding cows a little bit later, especially high producing cows, would be a little bit better. So To test this hypothesis, this idea that breeding later is better, we used a timed AI system to do that. And the way we did this, we did this on three farms, uh, three participating farms, actually one was in Nebraska, one was in Ohio, and one was in Wisconsin, and these are farms anywhere from 6,600 cows to 1,800 cows, good farms, uh, relatively high milk production. only first lactation cows. That's all we looked at, because that's where most of the sex semen is being used. So we had 730 total first lactation cows that were bred to sex semen. And what we did is we looked at a double opsing program for first breeding. And what we did was we changed the timing of that last generation. Normally we give that last generation in the afternoon and we breed the next morning. That gives us a 16-hour time period between the last generation time AI, which is kind of optimal for conventional semen. So that's our control group. The treatment group, what we did is we moved that last generation to the morning. So that gives us a 24-hour time interval from the last generation time to AI, which is essentially, if you think about it, breeding later relative to ovulation. And it ends up that uh, if you look at the conception rates in that study, it was a 50% conception rate if you if you inseminated the cows uh, using the traditional method, kind of that uh, 16-hour interval if you extended that interval from G2 to timed AI, it was 44%, so it was minus six percentage points. So we kind of concluded in this study a couple things. When you control the timing of insemination, it does not look like breeding later is better, okay? Uh, and so what we recommend, if you're using timed AI, uh, like a double sync program in your first lactation animals, you want to breed those animals just like we normally recommend. Last generation in the afternoon. freedom them the next morning with that timed AI. So it's kind of an interesting data set. I think it's kind of important. It's coming out. It's, uh, coming out in the Journal of Dairy Science. <clears throat> My grad student Megan, who did this project, actually just uh, won a student award. To-
1: Can you comment? There's some um, companies now making higher dose sex semen that they think the fertility is going to be as reduced. Are you familiar with that, or have you looked at it, or what's? Yeah, I mean, they call comments that, on that?
2: Yeah, they call that four M. I don't think the problem based on most of the data with sex semen is a compensatory problem. And what compensatory means is that fertility problems can be overcome by adding more sperm, okay? So, I don't think that that's the solution to the problem. I think that what we're looking at is the sorting process, the sexing process damages sperm to some extent, and those fertility problems are going to be are going to be hard to overcome. And so what we want to do is make sure that using this, you know, sex semen in the best way that we possibly can. Now, briefly, my graduate student, Megan, has a second project she's working on with non-lactating heifers. So we're looking at setting heifers up on like five-day cedar sink protocol versus giving in prostaglandin and breeding to estrus. So that's going to be, a, I'm not ready to talk about that data yet, but we'll be coming out with it probably I would say early in 2021, the data will be done and, and analyzed, so we'll be talking about that. But again, with heifers, I think, Kim, one of the topics we wanted to at least touch on is what about breeding heifers? And, you know, I, I think there's a couple mistakes being done with these uh, non-lactating heifers, and one is calving them too early. We have an interesting data set from a, a farm, actually, in northern Iowa, and uh, we we put weights You know, because really what it has to do is percent mature body weight. So you would have read about 55% of mature body weight. You want them to calve at about 85% of mature body weight. When we looked at their calvings and looked at weight, the animals that had 87% of mature body weight after they calved gave 10 pounds of milk more than the animals that were 70% of mature body weight when they calved. 10 pounds. And that's 10 pounds of milk per cow per day of lactation. It's just a phenomenal amount of milk. So that's one thing is, is this age of calving issue. The second thing is, the biggest cost with heifers is days on, days on feed. So when it's time to get the heifers pregnant, when they hit their, your body weight targets, you want to get them pregnant quickly, and so using maybe a timed AI to set them up in conjunction with uh, sex semen may be the way to go.
0: Going back to the age at calving, um, typically we've sh- we've tried to target that 22 to 24 months seem to be the the magical number there. Looking at mature body weight, are we now looking at 24 to 26 months?
2: Yeah, and I think Kim, I think the message and Megan is is working through this. It's a it's a huge amount of data that she's having to pull together and start to analyze. Um. I think what we're going to find, at least when we look at this particular farm, and it's an interesting farm. It's about a 7,000 cow dairy, and they've got a lot of weights, okay, on there. They've taken they're taking a lot of weights during growth, so we can we can do this stuff. I think it's let. I would focus way less on age, and try to hit body body weight targets. That's what's I heard data sets going to show that it's not about age. So, I think age is age can be be misleading. Uh, as and I wouldn't use age because. Heifers can gain 1.9 pounds a day, or they can gain 1.6 pounds per day. And you project that out across growth, it's at the same age, they're gonna be uh they're gonna be lots different, right? And so I think it's gonna be more about percent mature body weight. And I think that uh how do you know what the percentage, well, how do you know what the mature body weight is on in your herd? Well, you have to weigh cows. You can't, and it's not the average weight of your coal cows, right? It's the You got to go into cows at about 60 days post calving and weigh a bunch of third and fourth lactation animals and figure out what your mature body weight is. And then you get your target and you have to get those heifers to that target. Uh, And I think what we're going to see, we've talked about on the cow side, how much better we've gotten with Repro. I think we have a long way to go in these heifers. I I think there's a lot of... uh, a lot of things that we can do to really tighten up and and get these heifer programs uh, going a lot better.
0: I want to switch gears for a second. Let's talk about in vitro fertilization in embryo transfer. Yep. What are we seeing there? What are some new advances on that front?
2: Yeah, so Here in Wisconsin, we have a lot of IVF embryo transfer going on, and one of the reasons for that is we have the AI companies here. And so AI companies wanna generate these IVF embryos and they wanna put them in. That's their next generation of bulls that they're trying to prove. And and so they'll pay herds to put those uh, those, uh, embryos in to heifers. One of the problems with IVF embryo transfer is we tend to see higher rates of pregnancy loss. If you look at pregnancies per embryo transfer, the the numbers look pretty good, okay? But the losses from the first preg check, which is around 30 some days, to the second preg check, which is about 60 some days, can be double or triple what we normally see. They can be in that 20% range. So they're not normal. And I had a grad student that uh, did an experiment. All these embryos were put into uh, heifers after they were synchronized with a five-day CEDAR-SYNC program. don't know what that is go to the dcrc website look up the five days seed program it's a synchronization system and what we did is we split the heifers into two groups they either got 2000 iu of hcg at embryo transfer or they served as controls now we thought maybe we could increase fertility we could increase pregnancies per et that didn't happen what we saw was a decrease in pregnancy loss for the animals that received hCG at the time of embryo transfer. So that was kind of exciting. It really wasn't what the experiment was it was designed to do. And we're going to look at this in a in a larger study to try to repeat it. My colleague Milo Wilbank has has similar data. And I think the industry is starting to do that. Now, that's one aspect. So we're trying to work on these IVF embryo transfer pregnancies to to get those better. But Jim, you had mentioned an interesting phenomenon. And that is that there's a group now that is trying to develop high yield, high output systems to create beef embryos, IVF embryos. And those are on the market now. They call these things sim vitro herd flex. And so rather than using beef semen on dairy animals and creating you know, a crossbred calf, which there's some problems with, not not a lot of problems, but there are some problems with it. They're going to try to get the cost of embryos by mass producing them down into that, you know, whatever, I'm not going to say a dollar range. I think you have to get those embryos cheaper for this to really go, but I think they can probably do it. But I think what we're going to see, Jim, is a big increase in uh, IVF beef embryos transferred into dairy cows. And so I think, you know, heads up, we're going to start seeing that happen.
1: Yeah, I think the AI companies, I don't know if Kim, if you're seeing this they're they're arguing that to really make that profitable, a dairy farmer should keep those beef calves and then have them custom fed or partner with a feedlot. Are you seeing any of that or is that too new? Kim, do you want to comment on that? You've got all the feedlots there in uh, Nebraska, but I think at least here, the AI companies that are pushing that are saying long-term, not short-term, but long-term, these large dairies should partner with a beef producer and either have them fed in that feedlot or partner with that beef feedlot?
0: I don't I don't have a lot of information on that. Um, I do know that we have had more discussions with our dairy producers and feedlot producers on that front um, probably for that specific reason itself we've actually been trying to get dairy producers to work more with with our feedlots we just see that dairy beef just working so much better and then also working with the feedlots on some of the some of the genetic side as well so what what works well for your feedlot but then also looking beyond the feedlot to the to the p- processor to the packer as well you know what do you need from from that from the meat side of everything for dairy beef.
2: Yeah, Jim. And I I think I agree, but with both of you, I think that what you said, Jim, is what people have to do. I think they have to start partnering there. There are groups that will feed out this, uh, this, these crossbred calves. If you use a portfolio sires that they are looking for. And uh, so they can kind of guarantee the quality of those particular animals and the growth characteristics and those kinds of things. But uh you know, this is a new area, and I think we, there's a lot of research that needs to be done on sire selection and those kinds of things, breeds, um, for getting that to go. And we're we're in the early stages of that, and I think it'll it'll continue.
1: Yeah, it's sure an interesting concept. I mean, it's it's really what we it's amazing what we can do reproductively.
0: Paul, if you could summarize uh, high pregnancy rates and reproductive management for dairy producers. What are three summary points that you would give to them?
2: Yeah, so I think to recap what we've talked about, really high preg rates have led to a new problem, which is an excess of heifers. If you're a dairy farmer who's still raising all those extra heifers, you need to start thinking about new strategies. So what are these new strategies? They're heifer inventory management, controlling your uh, herd turnover, getting that number from 40% down to say 30% or even 25% taking advantage of new technologies, which is figuring out the first thing you have to do, you got to figure out the genetic merit of the animals within your herd. So you know which ones are the good ones and which ones are the bad ones. And then you can start implementing strategies of use of sex semen and beef semen and culling strategies and those kinds of things to, uh, to take advantage of uh, the good repro that you have in your herd. So these are things that are happening very quickly. And I know uh, there's a lot of people with a lot of questions on that. There's a lot of talks going on right now, uh, just in all of these different areas. So I've kind of of compressed it down into a really kind of a quick little overview here.
0: Lots of good information for dairy producers uh, as they're evaluating their reproduction program, reproductive program that they have on the farm, whether it's looking at their heifer inventories or sex semen even using starting to use some beach semen within their, within their cows as well. Thanks, Paul. We appreciate your expertise that you provided on, on this topic, and we look forward to having our listeners join us on uh, future podcasts.
2: I-29 MU-U is an equal opportunity provider. For the full non-discrimination statement or accommodation inquiries, go to extension.iastate.edu forward slash diversity forward slash ext.